You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Amen. You may be seated for the reading of God's Word. Our first lesson is from 1 Corinthians 13, which starts on page 959 of your Pew Bible. And as we will gladly say each week, if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take one of these with you as a gift from us. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Gospel reading comes from Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. You can find it on page 881 of your pew Bible. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Once again, good morning, church. Hey, good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Good to see you. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve as a pastor here. 
Now, by way of orientation, today is the seventh and final Sunday in the season of Epiphany. And as we conclude the season, we are also concluding our sermon series on gospel formation for missional presence. And I'll remind us that the purpose of this series has been to focus and clarify our reason for existing as a church, Redeemer's why, so to speak. And thus far, we've said that gospel formation happens as we take up the seven practices of the ancient church. And if you take out the liturgy you received when you walked in and, and flip it open to the just inside cover, you'll find more about those seven practices of gospel formation for missional presence printed there. Practices of story, identity, belonging, virtue, context, vocation, and imagination. And as we practice these together, we as a church family are becoming the missional presence of Jesus here in our city. A presence to our families and to our neighbors and to our coworkers. And today we're going to conclude this series with practice number seven, reordering imaginations through beauty and mystery. As we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Do you remember the first time that you were struck by something beautiful? just stopped dead in your tracks by the stunning glory and beauty of something. I remember one particular summer, it was the first week of June. School was out, glorious freedom. Uh, it's like the best uh, week of the year for a kid. But in an effort to destroy all happiness in the world, my parents had signed me up for summer swim team. I was not excited to be there. So my mom dropped me off at 8 a.m. And by the way, 8 a.m. on summer vacation might as well be 5 a.m., during the school year. It's just an ungodly hour. And so there I was walking in, into the, you know, the pool um, area, going to meet our new swim team coaches for the year, and that's when I saw her. There she was. Now, it was the 80s, so she had the side ponytail going on. She was in college. I was smitten. I didn't have a chance. It did not help that her name was Angel, okay? It's a true story. Um, and since I, at the time, was at the promising age of six years old, I figured I had a pretty good chance with her. Um, Y'all, I went from hating swim team to loving swim team that summer. Early morning practice, no problem. Freezing cold water, I got this. Coach Angel, look how many laps I can swim. It's one of those times where like you're swimming through the pool and you're just aware of this other person's presence all the time. It's like, take a stroke, take a breath, there she is. Take a stroke, take a breath, there she is. I was hopeless. You can run through walls for beauty. Why? Because when beauty captures your imagination, whether it's a song or a painting or a film or a poem or a story or a building or a mountain or most glorious of all, another human, your whole being orients towards that thing or that person. We live out of our imaginations. And this is actually the story that the Bible tells about the imagination. I wonder if you knew that. The story of the Bible begins with imagination as part of the image of God. Just think about the first half of that word imagination, image. God creates the world out of his imagination. We are, you might say, the fruit of God's imagination. And in bestowing his image upon us, he bestows his imaginative capacity within us. But humanity misuses their imaginations, beginning to imagine a world where they are not under God, but rather equal with God. The temptation in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 begins with imagination. Just imagine the serpent beckons. Eat this fruit and you'll be like God. 
And as humans follow the imagination of the serpent, they fall into sin, and thus all human imagination becomes twisted and corrupted and diminished. But God, forever imagining a reunion and a restoration for his people, pursues his people with love and offers them a new imagination. Do you know what the Old Testament calls the new imagination that God has for his people? The law. The law is God's imagination for a new way for his people to inhabit the world. The law is God inviting his, human, his humanity to follow or to reimagine their relationship with him and with themselves and with each other and with the world. And that imagination is fulfilled, consummated, and embodied in the coming of Jesus, the fullest expression of God's imagination. Jesus is God saying to his people, imagine if I were one of you. And the Bible concludes with the most comforting and hopeful of invitations to imagine a future where God and his people dwell in eternal joy and peace and restfulness together. And look, within that story of imagination, imagination bestowed, imagination corrupted, imagination renewed, and imagination restored, we have our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 13. It's the famous love chapter. People who don't care at all about Jesus or the gospel or church still have most of 1 Corinthians 13 half memorized because it gets read at weddings so often, right? It gets quoted in Hallmark cards, and then after that, mostly ignored. But as we'll see in the text, the text speaks to the imagination, in particular to our seventh and final question, how do I love? That essential human question, how do I love? A question every human being breathing oxygen on planet Earth right now is asking, whether they're aware of it or not, how do I love? Now, I know some of you get a little bit anxious if I don't give you an outline, and so you want to know where all this is heading. So, be at peace. Here's your outline. Uh, part one, we're going to talk about how a rightly ordered imagination fosters rightly ordered loves. How a rightly ordered imagination fosters rightly ordered loves. Part two, how a disordered imagination fosters disordered loves. And then part three, how might we reorder our imagination and loves through beauty and mystery? How do we reorder our imagination and loves through beauty and mystery? Okay, part one, a rightly ordered imagination fosters rightly ordered loves. We're going to go to the text, 1 Corinthians 13. The first three verses go like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, I'm a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give up all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. What is the author, who by the way is the Apostle Paul, what is he saying? He's saying... Love matters more than anything else. It is the essential in life. He is describing a person who speaks eloquently, who has a brilliant mind, who believes powerfully, who gives and sacrifices themselves generously, but does not do so, is not motivated by a place of love. It's the difference between the outer person and the inner person. And if we take nothing else from this, we ought to take that it is entirely possible to live a life that appears to be loving, that is not, in fact, genuinely and authentically loving because it's not coming from a place of love within. And then the author goes on to describe what that place of love within is actually like. If you were actually motivated by love, what would it be like? What would it look like? That's verses 4 through 7. Love is patient, kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
It's what real love looks like on the inside. What's the common thread between all of those descriptors? It's that love is oriented towards the good of the other at great cost to the self. Love is oriented towards the good of the other at great cost to the self. And then he goes on in uh, verse 8 to say, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. The author is saying, so when you strip everything else away, when you get really down to the core of it, to the core of existence, to the core of life, it's love. And you know, as, as esoteric and abstract as that sounds, I think we actually know this intuitively, probably more than we know it, more than, more than we're able to articulate it. This actually shows up in our stories and our movies and our TV shows all the time. How many times have you seen a scene in a movie where the two characters who have kind of been at odds with each other throughout the whole story are standing there in front of one another and there's kind of destruction and chaos swirling all around them. Everything is falling apart. You're like nine-tenths of the way through the movie and they're in this moment of desperation, they take a deep breath and they finally, you've been waiting for this for two and a half hours, they finally confess their love for each other, right? You've seen this, I know you've seen this, and I have too. Because when you strip everything away, what's left there at the end? What's really at the core of things? It's love, right? Verse 9 through 12 read, For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, but now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be fully known. I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The author is saying love is the eternal relationship. And though God isn't named in this final stanza, it's about God. All the love that we experience in life is to be a signpost pointing to God. He's saying, look, the fulfillment of human love is not human love. It's love of God and being loved by God. All of the love that we experience in this life is meant to be a signpost, a sign on the, on the edge of the road pointing us onward towards something greater, towards the true destination. And concluding with these, this very famous sentence, so, the, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Why is love the greatest? Well, because faith and hope are believing in the promises of God before they are realized, but love is affection for God himself. That's why it's the greatest. Now, listen, at this point you might be wondering, what do love and imagination have to do with each other? Are these just two different topics that are both kind of feeling-based? <laughs> what, is, what is the relationship between these two? Think about it this way. You can only love that which you find to be lovable. And that might sound redundant or maybe kind of blisteringly obvious, but let it sink in. You can, only you can only love that which you find to be lovable, meaning you can act and speak lovingly to people and things that you actually dislike, right? You can sing worship songs and pray to a God that you don't know or like very much at all, but you cannot genuinely love God unless you find him to be lovable, and desirable and beautiful. You can't genuinely love your neighbor unless you find her to be lovable and valuable. How do you go about finding God beautiful? How do you go about finding your neighbor lovable? Where does that take place? In your imagination. As I imagine God to be desirable and my neighbor to be valuable, my love for them grows. As I imagine God to be, on the other hand, cruel, distant, my neighbor to be deplorable, my love shrinks and grows cold. Therefore, to expand my capacities for love, to learn to love well, I must foster and nurture my imagination for that which I seek to love. 
And what kinds of things and experiences make me imagine God to be beautiful? What kinds of things and experiences make me imagine my neighbor to be valuable? These then become practices of imaginative love. Look, we learn to love through our imaginations, and as our imaginations flourish, so we become better lovers, both of God and of other people. Now, if that is an introduction to how rightly ordered imagination leads to rightly ordered loves, what happens when it falls apart? What happens when we have a disordered imagination? How might that lead to disordered loves? There's an objection that is probably already in your mind that we need to address, which is when it comes time to talk about imagination, are we talking about things that aren't real? Because that's what the word imagination has come to mean for us in our society now, right? When we say imagine, what we mean is specifically something not real. Now, this divorce has not always been the case. We have not always, humanity has not always divorced imagination from reality. In fact, if you go far enough back through human history, you have to get back to before the Enlightenment. What you find is the imagination is recognized by theologians and philosophers and by most uh, thinking human beings who are breathing oxygen, that imagination is actually a truth-bearing faculty, meaning imagination is part of how you access reality. It's part of how you engage with the truth of the world. But when you divorce the imagination from reality, then imagination becomes only for inner subjective meaning. And inner subjective meaning is opposed to cold, hard facts, right? Once the imagination is separated from the real world, then the only value of the imagination is for sentimentality or entertainment, maybe, right? It's fun, but it's not real. Therefore, if you divorce the imagination from reality, the arts become matters of private subjective decoration. What do I like becomes the most important question, right? Because what's the purpose of the imagination? It's just sentimentality and entertainment. So the purpose of the arts just simply becomes, what do I like? It changes the way we relate to the natural world. Do I like mountains or do I like beaches, right? <laughs> do I want to be hot or do I want to be cold? It changes the way we relate to music. Is this song fun? Can I connect with it? Can I dance to it? <laughs> does it make me feel things I want to feel? Or does it make me feel things I don't want to feel? It changes the way we relate to words and stories and poetry. Do I understand this poem or this story right away? Or do I have to work a little bit hard? And if I have to work so hard that I become uncomfortable, I no longer like it, which means it's no longer for me, which means it's no longer valuable, which means I will not engage with it, right? It changes the way we relate to visual art. Do I think it's pretty? Pretty, by the way, this is going to sound a little bit savage, but I actually mean it. Pretty is fake beauty. Pretty is easy beauty, comfortable beauty, cheap beauty. Pretty is beauty that doesn't challenge, beauty that does not invite transformation, beauty that doesn't change. Dana Joya, who's a uh, the poet laureate and also a, a Christian, writes, a sentimental movie with lovely actors presenting a contrived plot in which everybody ends up rich, happy, and famous may be pleasant, but it's so far from reality that it isn't beautiful. Prettiness is superficial. Beauty brings us to the center of a thing. You see, when we divorce the imagination from reality, it changes the way we relate to everything in the material world, even architecture. Think about it. Is this building my style? Again, do I like it becomes the most important question. It's a race to the bottom, all of us reducing the beautiful mystery of the natural world and the creativity of humanity into pretty things, 
comfortable things, easy things. And this breeds a kind of familiarity, a numbness to the world, where our ability to be startled by the stunning glory of existence is deadened. And what's more, the disordered imagination of our world has given way to a kind of ugliness. I was in Northern Virginia yesterday. It's kind of ugly. <laughs> I can say that because I live here. <laughs> and we're in the fan district. No, but think seriously about this. Do you remember that old children's song? I don't know if any of you had parents who sang this to you growing up. Remember that children's song? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. How does the refrain of that song go? It says, for the Father up above is looking down with love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Now, I think the wrong way to understand that song, which is how I understood it for most of my childhood, which is, shape up God's watching, right? <laughs> it's like the accountability song. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm rethinking that song now. For the Father up above is looking down with love. I think a, a better understanding might be God is giving his love to me and to you. And if we are to respond well to the love that is already coming to us, then the practices of our eyes and our ears and our hands are actually part of that response and actually shape our ability to either respond or perhaps not respond to the love of God. Now, how does this disordered imagination disorder our loves? If you think your inability to be awestruck by a sunrise, to be moved to tears by a song, to gaze in wonder at the smile of a child, or to have your soul stirred by a poem has nothing to do with your faith or your relationship with God, you have lost touch with your own humanity. We end up becoming, over time, the very inverse of what Psalm or what uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is describing. A noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, a person turned in on the self, oriented towards the self at cost to the other. Remember our definition of love according to 1 Corinthians 13? Oriented towards the, towards the good of the other, even at cost to the self. How do I actually make my way through the world, especially in relationship to other people? Oriented towards the self at great cost to the other, right? Instead of love being a signpost pointing to God, we end up just looking at the signs and deciding whether we like them or not. Have you ever tried, if you, think about it this way, have you ever tried to get the attention of a dog and tried to get your dog to look at something? So, you know, Come here, boy. And then you point, and you're trying to get the dog to look. But what, where does the dog look? He looks at your hand, right? He doesn't look at the thing you're pointing to. He just looks at the hand. This is what we end up doing, not only with the natural world, but also with all of the creative beauty that humanity generates. We end up looking at the sign, and we fail to see what it's pointing to. And rather than understanding our loves as fingers pointing to God, we look at the hand, the sign itself. And so our love does not remain the greatest joy of our life is not love, but rather it becomes something much lesser. So listen if you can. So much of our culture and our society is not beautiful. You and I both know that. And it does not invite us into any kind of beautiful mystery, but rather it is ugly or sometimes even worse, pretty, which is a kind of fake beauty. And this familiar ugliness stifles our imaginations and quells and chills our love. And worst of all, our imaginations are so dead that we come to believe that we don't really need them at all. And as our imaginations asphyxiate, so our loves begin to dwindle, and then our households become full of bickering and fighting and complaining and resentment. 
We have these records of wrongs, lists of other people's sins that we keep handy, ready to trot them out the minute we need to prove that we're the victim and someone else is oppressing us, especially family members, right? We're impatient, unkind, jealous, boastful, arrogant, rude. And when you catch someone doing something wrong, what do you do? Come on. When you catch somebody doing something wrong, what do you do? You rejoice a little bit, maybe just on the inside. It feels so good when you realize someone's beneath you, isn't it? And you come to church, or you attend a small group, you meet with a Christian friend, or you encounter art or a song or a story that beckons you to love God and to love your neighbor. <laughs> and in our diminished imaginations, we go, what? Why would I love God? Have you met my neighbor? They're the worst. I guess you can believe in those things if you want to live in that imaginary world that Christians pretend to live in. But I live in the real world. Have you ever been startled by something so beautiful that it just stops you dead in your tracks and everything kind of changes? In all of our bitterness and of our disordered imagination and disordered loves comes this startling thing. A God who does not initiate by accusing us of being ugly, but a God who initiates by accusing us of being beautiful. A God who initiates by calling us beautiful. You see, all throughout the story of the Bible, we see this God who continues to call his people his bride, calling forth their beauty, seeking to allure them, to draw them back to himself. Why does God find us beautiful? We are not. Why does he find us beautiful? Why does he find us lovable? It is because God has a rightly ordered imagination and therefore a rightly ordered love. And he is able to love that which he wants to find lovable and he finds us lovable. And you see, listen if you can, Jesus is the embodiment of God's imaginative love. Jesus lived the most beautiful human life ever lived. Think about the life of Jesus, parables as stories of imagination. Healings to astonish the imagination. Miracles of water into wine to stimulate the imagination. Miracles of food to satiate the imagination. And the death of Jesus, horrifying though it is, has a kind of beauty in its realness in the meaning of sacrificial love. The cross is not pretty, is it? But it is beautiful if you have the eyes to see it. Why? Because the cross is the single greatest signpost pointing beyond itself to the love of God for you. And so therefore, for you, the cross contains within itself a kind of beauty, even though it is not pretty. In Jesus' death, Though horrifying, there is a kind of beauty because it shows us the realness of the meaning of sacrificial love. And this beauty is actually made complete, consummated in the resurrection. Jesus died, but he rose in stunning beauty. And in this beauty we perceive in him, it fosters our love, both for God and for other people. There's a, a man named Thomas Chalmers who wrote about what he called the expulsive power of a new affection. Just think about that phrase a new affection, a new love that comes into your life and expels all other loves, banishes all other loves. It takes up all the space. It's so powerful. Something so beautiful, nothing else can compare. 
Listen, when it comes to sifting through our own disordered affections, our own disordered loves, and our own disordered imaginations, which we all have, right? Here's what you don't have to do. You don't have to go through the junk drawer of your life and find all the bent spoons and straighten them all out one by one. No, you can ditch the whole drawer, dump it out, and go and walk across the kitchen to the table and sit down with your lover who is there to meet with you. The sacraments of the gospel are invitations to experience the expulsive power of that new affection of the love of God. Think about baptism and Holy Communion. These are beautiful mysteries, are they not? Do you understand baptism and Holy Communion? No, you don't. (laughs) You know why? I don't understand it either. (laughs) These are mysteries. And by mysteries, we don't just mean enigmas. Rather, they they are ways that invite us to relate to God in a way that we can viscerally experience with our bodies, but which our minds cannot fully grasp. Think about the communion meal, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, which we will all partake of in a few moments. This is a meal of love. In it is contained the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. In this meal, it carries with it all of these practices that we've been talking about for the past seven weeks. This is a meal that comes from a story, right? There's a story embedded in this meal. And by eating and drinking of it, you are taking the story into yourself. This is a meal that gives you a new identity. As you take Christ's love into you, you belong to him. This is the meal of belonging, not only belonging to him, but also it's a meal of unity. It unites us with each other. It's a meal that becomes the source of our virtue. This is the sacrificial love of God for you, and it commissions you to go and to live that sacrificial love out into the world. This is a meal that is local, here, in time and space. That's what a sacrament is. It's not something you believe. It's something you eat. (laughs) It happens here and now, and it commissions you. It gives you work to do. You eat the meal, and then you go and work out the meal. Listen, if you can, we've talked about how rightly ordered imagination leads to rightly ordered loves. We've talked about how disordered imagination leads to disordered loves and the crisis that gives us, but how God in his love for us encounters us in startling beauty and demonstrates his love for us most fully in the person and work and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And if our imaginations begin to be animated by the gospel, the good news of God's love for us in Jesus and the renewal of all things in him, well, then all those disordered imaginations begin to be remade, renewed, refreshed, reordered. And as our imaginations are renewed and refreshed by the gospel, so our loves follow along with them. This is why the church must take up practices of imagination of gospel imagination that will over time reorder our loves through beauty and mystery. And the church has always done this. Listen, please, I am not introducing anything new. This is an attempt to recapture and reclaim something very old. The church has done this so well throughout history, but it is also losing it. And part of our work here as a new church plant here in the city is to do the work of reclaiming of reclaiming this kind of work that the church has always done well, but it's in danger of losing. This is why we practice music, visual art, theater, film, new urbanism, architecture. This is why we give our attention to nature and rivers and mountains, poetry, stories, sacraments. 
This is why, in case that some of you are, are new, I'm sure many of you are new to the Anglican tradition, new to being a, a part of a church that practices some of these ancient things, you probably see a lot of things happening in this particular worship service or in the life of our church, and they, they mystify you. Why is there a cross that leads us in the procession, the beginning of the service? Why does it then recess out of the very end? Why do we light candles? Why do we eat bread and drink wine? Why do we stand and sit and kneel? Why do we raise our hands? Why do some of us make the sign of the cross over our chest? Why on Wednesday, this coming week, are we all going to gather here and have ashes mixed with oil placed on our foreheads? Why are we doing these things, y'all? It's just stuff. Isn't the Christian faith just something you believe? Isn't it just a doctrine that you believe that saves you? My God, no. It is a faith that we embody and practice. And it absolutely engages our imaginations or it doesn't engage you at all. If your imagination is not engaged with the gospel, if you are not practicing your faith out of your imagination with the gospel, then you could be someone who believes the biblical story, who believes that you have an identity in Jesus, who believes that you belong in the church family, who believes that you are to go and live a virtuous life, who is seeking the good of the city and the common good of your neighbors, and who is practicing your faith in your vocation, but you don't love God, and you don't know his love for you, and you don't really love each other. You don't feel their love for you. Love happens in the imagination. Our imaginations must be renewed by the gospel if we are to truly love God and not just act like it. Listen, we're going to conclude here. The church throughout history has, for the most part, been a great friend and a benefactor, patron of the arts. Not because Christians like pretty things, <laughs> but because we ourselves are signposts. The beauty of our lives pointing towards the beauty of God. The love of our hearts pointing towards the love of God. And therefore, in the things that we make, the materials we create, the stories we tell, the words we craft, the cities we build, in the music we sing, we are making new and beautiful signposts to point beyond themselves to the glory and wonder and majesty and awe of God who has made us and who has come to us and who has given himself for us because he loves us. And as our imaginations are enraptured in his love, we ourselves become lovers of God and lovers of neighbor, which is what we were made to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you, in the power of your Holy Spirit, through the wonder and glory of your gospel, stir and move and animate our imaginations so that we might receive your love, so that we might respond in love, and so that we might love each other well. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.